he said so like for this athlete this is their chicken suit they need to do that and if they've if they've gone away from from squatting maybe once once a week or once every 10 days they have to do that and if, if they don't have that they lose all sense of feeling in their in their acceleration phase again like i talk about kind of gives them some sense of feeling in in, in tonus and tension around their, their quads because they need to feel that when they're accelerating and if if they don't have that which against heavy squatting will give you right when you when you when you squat heavy you, you kind of prep the, the neuromuscular system to have tension in your anterior train that was coach ross jeffs and welcome to another episode it's great to have you guys here uh, we have an awesome show for you lined up on individualizing factors and in speed training individualization has been one of my favorite topics to get into i feel like one of the most rewarding things that uh, seems to happen throughout the process of coaching athletes is finding that athlete who just wasn't responding to the training that they had been given and looking at them and, and having the layers of awareness to understand where they're at and as, indi- as an individual, giving them the training they need and seeing them succeed. That is one of my absolute favorite things as a coach. And that's why these podcasts on training individualization, I just enjoy them a ton. So uh, Ross Jeffs, uh, he was on the podcast back on episode 145 talking about trainers versus racers, which again is another element of individualization. Basically knowing how to train athletes based off of how close they can get to their peak performance output in practice versus competition and how to train them correspondingly. Ross is currently working as a sprints, jumps, and hurdles coach at the Aspire Academy in Doha, Qatar. He formerly has worked in the Netherlands as a sprints and jumps coach and he's also coached under the guidance of Jonas Dodu within the Speedworks system. Uh, outside of track and field, Ross has worked with a number of athletes uh, from a range of sports, including tennis, boxing, uh, Olympic medalists from bas- basketball and rugby sevens. And Ross really has a full gamut of people that he's worked with. He's absolutely one of the most brilliant young coaches I've talked to. He's open-minded. He's curious. He has a huge tribe of mentors. And I always learn things that are very applicable, uh, whether I'm reading his articles or obviously talking to him in these podcasts. So for the show today, Ross is going to get into the idea behind um, three types of sprinting or three types of sprinting athletes and how to identify those and then how those athletes tend to respond best to training. And so I'd seen a presentation that Ross did on this. I was thoroughly intrigued and I'm like, we have to do a podcast on this. And so I'm super lucky to have him back. And uh, so we're going to get into that. We're going to get into three types of these three types of sprinting athletes, identifying them and then how to train them. And whether you're a track coach or not, there is a ton of gold in this show, uh, just in the sense that honestly, if you're a track coach, a lot of times, like if you're training jumpers, you, you may have a group that is almost more going to be close to one type versus a team sport you're going to have a lot of types and so being able to just go through these ideas it's going to give you great new layers of awareness and this was an awesome show so all that being said let's get on to it episode 206 with ross jeffs ross man it's awesome to have you back how how have you been uh has there been any uh i've been doing any online coaching in the midst of all this what's what's happening in the world of track and field right now yeah joel thanks for having me mate um yeah, it's interesting actually. I'm I'm out in Qatar at the moment. I've been here for about uh, almost a year now. So we've been in lockdown since uh, early March. So we've been doing most of our training sessions on Zoom, and all the tracks have been closed. So there's not there's not been much going on. Yeah, plenty plenty of time to. Was that where this presentation that we're going to talk about today was born? I'm sure that that's been it's been in the works right for a long time. But did that give you the free time to get all this together? 
Yeah, the I work with James Baker, who's uh, who who runs Pro Performance, Pro Performance, and and he's kind of been been bugging me to kind of put something together for a while, so it's the right time to do things. Yeah, for sure. I think sometimes um, when there's a little bit more free time or downtime, I know for me it's been a lot easier to get a wider spectrum of guests on for sure on my own end with all this on the for the podcast. But I I was really still. I know our, our talk last time with the trainers versus racers was awesome. I mean, it it gave me so many things to think about and implement, and so I was super excited to see that you had the uh, a new a new categorization. And of course, and we talked about this like. You know, not the goal isn't to put athletes in boxes per se, but just the more we can learn about how different athletes respond is is just so incredible and interesting to me. And so, uh, let's kick this off. Let's uh, t- tell us about uh, your your category your categorization the the concentric, elastic, and metabolic. Um, maybe just start with um, the history of it. Like where where did all this come from in in terms of you your journey of of deciding or or determining which athletes. Uh, I know track sprinters were talking about specifically, but which types of sprinters were responding to which types of training? Yeah, so so sprint type, and to kind of briefly set the scene first, I think look, if you were to watch a uh, 100-meter final at the Olympics, there, there are many commonalities and consistencies around what the fastest sprinters in the world do technically, but there's also somewhat of a variation, right? And all too often this variation is shrugged off as a – as an idiosyncrasy or, you know, this athlete would run faster if they ran like this or their model is an anomaly. So we shouldn't copy it. And what actually might be inefficient for one person might be actually efficient for another. And it's the same if you analyze a training program. I mean, in this hundred meter final, there's going to be some very similar themes that the coaches do with the athletes, but there'll also be some very different themes. We know people have run 10-0 running never more than two times 90 meters and more some thrived off going all the way up to 500 and 600 meter reps so very early in my coaching career i kind of realized that certain athletes responded very differently to the program that they were given and equally equally they responded very differently to the kind of technical change as well and when this happens time and time again over two to three years you start to see some clear consistencies and, and pictures around what kind of profiles you have in sprinters and then to go with that, a lot of people have been putting some ideas out on the topic around, you know, neurotyping and action typing, because we talked about some fiber typing stuff from Hank and Altus put some stuff out around muscular and fascial type athletes. And then there's a good bit of research from the distance running community around aerial and terrestrial runners. So it's kind of blended all these ideas and, and something that into something that I understand and see and can apply on a consistent basis. Yeah, I know the, so I actually, I want to touch on what you just mentioned with the aerial and terrestrial runners. And I think, I know before the show, I think you mentioned that was uh, French research. And I know that the the distinction of uh, elastic versus muscular has been out there for a while or, or anything along those lines. Um, and, and I think a lot of people listening to this are probably pretty familiar with that. But if you could actually go into, well, I'd love to hear more about the that terrestrial and, and aerial uh, research with the distance runners and, and what that entailed. Yeah, I'll start from the beginning. I'll go through the kind of concentric, elastic, and then I'll end up with the metabolic. I'll leave the best to last. So look, it's easier to explain these with videos. So if I've not created a clear picture, please check out the presentation afterwards. But to talk about concentric first, I'll kind of describe why I've called each of them those terms and then how these guys look when they sprint and then how they might react differently to training. So 
concentric being fairly obvious in the sense that these sprinters run fast because of their strong concentric strength and power capabilities and the way they sprint is reflective of that but like i said it's similar to the the muscular type sprinters that Altis talk about and look, these are usually your 60 100 meter specialists picture christian coleman picture shelly ann Frey's price they're very anterior chain very quad dominant they have really really good pushing abilities they can hold deep angles and accelerative running and are really dominant in, in the acceleration phase of the race. They're very, very much muscle and contractile driven. And sometimes jump profiling can also help identify these. They perform very well in counter movement jumps and, and do this by having a strategy of a, of a deeper lowering phase, which, which helps them use their powerful anterior chain musculature. In terms of how they adapt to training, it, it I think, they usually respond better to a higher volume and density of acceleration and speed work. And that's not to say, you know, they'll do this work five times a week, but as a percentage of their overall running training, their acceleration speed work is usually higher. And similarly, these athletes tend to respond well to resisted acceleration methods, sled, pulleys, prowlers, 1080, you know, whatever feeds their ability to push. They generally prefer la- less lactic tempo running, less kind of plodding based base running. And that's probably because Joel is, it's like we talked about, they have a, they likely have a higher fast twitch fiber type distribution. And if you do too much of that more junk work, um, you'll dull them. A small dose of like, uh, kind of tempo running and upright running is important for rhythm and work capacity purposes. But if you get them in horrible positions too often for extended period of time, you'll hurt them both from a performance and an, and an injury perspective. And in terms of the jumping and plyometric type training, they respond well to it's, Similar to the idea of the, the counter movement jump, they, they like to do jumps which utilize long stretch shortening cycle mechanism, you know, free static hops into the pit, free bunny, standing long jump, standing triple jump, those kind of things. And then the lifting component, you know, this is their bread and butter, their chicken soup. This has to be in regularly. They have to have a higher volume of strength and power training. They also seem to respond well to kind of full range heavy movement. It gives them tension and tonus in that anterior chain, which helps kind of with the feeling when they push on the track and then to move on to the elastic neck. So why are they called elastic? So when we sprint and strike the ground, the majority of energy is produced by the lower limb and the foot and ankle complex. So when I say elastic, I'm referring to that instance, you know, these athletes have a a unique ability to use the recycled energy from that part of the body. They have super high levels of stiffness around the ankle joint and show a superior level of reactivity when they sprint it's quite similar to again the aerial runners that we talked about before um the sprinters will, will dominate more in the max velocity phase of the race you know around 40 to 70 meters where upright um they're at or around their max velocity and this is where the athletes usually show their worth think andre de grasse adam jamili tiana bartoletta blessing operator elaine thompson those kind of sprinters and where the concentric runner may dominate force more using their quads, the elastic, I said, like I said, a bit more ankle dominant. They're much more tender and non-contractile driven compared to their concentric counterpart. And in their upright running, they are very, very front side, use large ranges of motion front side, a bounce dominant. They have a higher flight time and relatively very, very short ground contact time, which enables them to bounce upwards and forwards. And in terms of jump profiling, where the, Concentric athlete might dominate a kind of movement jump. These athletes will, will dominate kind of drop jump tests. They'll have higher RSIs. So they'll have very short ground contact times when they do this. And in terms of how those guys train, like these are more of your Goldilocks type athletes. 
not too much of one thing, but not too much of something else. They seem to like variation. And if you do too much of the, the same program for too long, they'll become stagnant. They're, they're very bouncy in nature. So you have to feed this with rhythmical upright running, max feet hurdles, wickets, tempo, whatever, whatever it is. And in terms of jumping, they generally respond better to a higher volume of jumping modalities that utilize short stretch, shortening cycle mechanisms like hurdle jumps, pogo jumps, speed bounds, hops and bounds, those kind of things. And you have to be a little bit more careful with, with depth jumps as these guys tend to have a bit more of a fragile nervous system and that reflects some of their gym work. They don't usually need big heavy loads in their spine. There's no need for full range of motion squatting or just concentric only lifts as it won't feed their elastic abilities. And eccentric strength stimulus is good for these because it both feeds their elastic ability but also keeps them healthier because these guys are sometimes a bit more you know, skinnier with longer tendons and less muscle mass. And they'll generally prefer more partial range of motion exercises like a hang clean, hang snatch, and anything with an elastic element. And, and in general, it's just moderate volume of strength and power work. And I've seen some get away of doing very little to nothing in the gym from a performance perspective, but the gym work is as much for bulletproof and it is for output of these guys. So finally getting onto the, the metabolic. So I originally called these, these fascial, and that's a word kind of out there that's thrown about in track and field. It's a little bit of a taboo word. And that's understandable because look, we don't know a lot about fascia. But for me, when I think fascia, I think of, you know, the ability to use the various sling systems to execute a movement efficiently and with high economy. But of course, fascia also uses elastic mechanisms. So to avoid confusion, I, I use the term suggested by a few different coaches, metabolic, actually one of the guys on your show before, Alex Natira, was one of the guys who suggested that. And this is in reference to that these athletes will dominate because of how they use energy. You know, that's not to say they're superiorly aerobically fit and could be endurance runners, but more so their style relies on economy in a sense of the way they run might not exemplify what typical bio biomechanist researchers might say is the best way to run fast and apply force. But it's more so the chemistry of their, you know, the enzymatic and buffering systems work in harmony with contractile and non-contractile elements like think. Think of your in the distance runner, think of your Paula Radcliffe, your Harley Gabri Selassie's. Their running economy exemplified why they were so good. And despite this, you would often hear experts uh, refer to certain technical points as being, you know, biomechanically inefficient. And the, these metabolic types are your equivalent to those guys in sprinters. And again, it's like I said, it's a quite similar to the terrestrial runners we talked about before. And in terms of how they look when they sprint, so their sprinting model, these are, are probably the most inter interesting ones to talk about, right, Joel? Because they are the easiest to get wrong for the modern sprint coach, you know, who has a greater focus on concepts about being front side and whatnot. And I don't think this is talked about enough and it's, it's something maybe the more uh, quote-unquote old-school coaches uh, probably understand a bit more. You know, these metabolic athletes dominate the ends of sprint races. Inherently, you say that their style might be suited better to 200 or 400, but the fact is they're still outperforming a lot of the world over 100, right? So they must be doing something right. And you try and make these guys too front side and take away their backside and change their style too much, you, you can kill the beast. And it's, this is a mistake I've made so many times before kind of realizing what you can and can't do with these guys. So in acceleration, metabolic athletes usually have a bit more of a cyclical and less aggressive looking acceleration style. It's more about getting their steps down efficiently and trying to conserve as much energy as possible to set up the upright running. 
and in acceleration they kind of have limited ground contact time a vertical a bit sooner and it's simply because they don't they can't hold those low acceleration postures like the concentric athletes do because they don't have the raw strength and power profile to be able to do it these guys aren't blessed in that area and of course you can chip away on that stuff in the gym but as i'll mention in terms of how you train is you do too much of that and you chase starting strength or static strength too much with big concentric lifts you can kill the beast for sure and in upright running these guys make use of the backside action of the sprint cycle they pull themselves forward with their posterior chain they have limited bounce have a longer time on the ground and a, and a relatively shorter time in the air. You know, think your Alison Felix's, your Michael Johnson's, Noah Lyles, Sean A. Miller-Weebo. And what's important here is when you compare these types, it's not just about shapes and positions, but it's more so how they produce force. Being backside dominant doesn't mean you don't have any front side, but it just means you're pulling yourself forward rather than bouncing upwards and forwards. So in terms of how these guys might train, they generally need a higher volume of of, of running in their program. They need to put many steps down multiple times a week to kind of tap into that economy benefits they get. And this often includes high levels of lactate based running, you know, intensive tempo, special endurance, speed endurance with these athletes. Often they have to be fit before they are fast. So a long to short organization will, will probably work well with this, this subgroup and they don't generally need as much acceleration and speed works. And it's not to say it's a hindrance, but rather, if way more time is spent doing longer volumes of running, if you try and do lo- large volumes of excel and speed work as well, you'll, you'll run into problems. And from a jumping perspective, again, you got to be a little bit careful with the volume, but elastic endurance routines work quite well with these guys. You know, rudiment series, alternate bounding for longer distances, 40 to 80 meters, whatever feeds their economy well. And then in the gym, again, you have to be careful with this subgroup. So many times I've seen these metabolic geniuses become ruined by certain strength coaches chasing numbers these athletes don't need to be that strong do enough to get motor units online but if you start going overboard and and big levels of hypertrophy start to occur you'll get into trouble it's similar to the elastic guys in the sense that you know the the full range of motion assistance work is good for some of them tend to be a bit more long longer and stringy so it's good for their tendon health and because of their metabolic gifts doing some strength endurance work or power endurance work through circuits or, or whatever it is can can one help these athletes make these robust but also it'll give them some general strength abilities to do what they need to on the track so that's kind of generally what i find each category looks like and what works for them um, and it's not doesn't mean i'm not addressing weaknesses but you know it's probably in lower volumes that you, know, you might typically see yeah, for sure. That was a that was a lot of information in one shot. So I, I, let's let's unpack that. Uh, and also for people listening to, and I'll, I'll make sure I'll mention this in the pre roll too. But that we'll I'll have videos for these athletes in the show notes. So make sure you guys are going to justflysports.com and checking out the the show notes. So we'll have videos so you guys can see what's going on here. Because yeah, it's it's. I think if you coach track or watch sprinters a lot, it's like oh yeah, front side, back side mechanics. I get it, but. Yeah, and so let's well, let's get into that, and hopefully we can describe it pretty well along the way. The first uh, follow up I have for you is really a little bit more of a general one before we get into some specifics, and that's, I mean, this is something I think about whether working with uh, track athletes or uh, or even swimmers, which I work with swimmers a lot these days. I think about those first three categories of the neurotyping system: the the one A, the one B, and then the two A. Uh, which, if you, people haven't listened to that podcast, definitely check it out. But the one A being the more raw power the 1B being elastic and the 2A kind of being the metabolic hybrid. And 
yeah, I don't think a type three is probably ever going to be in the hundred meter final. Uh, if, if, you know, for whatever that exact, you know, combination is, but would you say that fits pretty close with that neurotyping style? Uh, um, you know, if you were to call it that or to try to, you know, again, I don't necessarily, I'm, I'm becoming a little less fan of really trying to solidly put athletes in a box and say, where exactly do you fit? But, you know, from a general perspective, uh, would you say that fits up pretty well with those three? Yeah, there's, there's, there's certainly some big crossovers there and Christian's done a good job of describing that. And I think for each, probably for each big physical capacity, you know, speed, strength, endurance, there's probably kind of certain types that exist in each, exist in each of them. So for, th- for this one, I've simply described max velocity and how you might type to make someone faster, but how that might exist for making someone run a 10K or be fit enough to play a game of soccer or rugby will probably have their own typings and, it, and it's very important to distinguish those. So like, simply for these guys, I'm, I'm talking about, about max velocity. I'm talking about sprinting. Sprinting is the most important thing for sprinting, but sprinting is not the most important for these other sports. So I'd encourage people to kind of look at those sports critically and decide what type of athletes you have. Because as I mentioned, in in, in different sports, you have different styles. I mean, in, in tennis, I use the example of Rafa Nadal and Roger Federer, two massively different styles and, of playing. And again, to, to play those styles, you will have to train very each athlete very differently. So I think, yeah, for, for different sports, you've got to take this maybe with a pinch of salt and critically think about those. I feel like those sports, though, too, it probably comes... A lot of the style probably comes from the the type of athlete. Or like Nadal is probably more of the concentric, or the one A type, perhaps. Uh, where whereas Federer is probably more, I don't know, further down the chain. That's for sure. He's not, you know, he's not like Christian Coleman. He's <laughs> he's a technical guy, you know, extremely good technically. And you you'd think that the playing style probably came off of like Nadal, just more force, more a little more throwing himself around the court, right? it maybe comes from not having, you know, whatever your gifts are, you probably develop your playing around that to some extent too, I imagine. Absolutely. And we talked briefly about what the athlete's training history is as well. And I think this will influence it a little bit in the example I used. It's, I had an athlete that was very much trained as a, as a metabolic type. So he, he kind of exhibited those characteristics and certainly an athlete's previous training history will, will, uh, will influence doesn't mean that they will always be that type for life but it might also mean that you you might need to have also a little bit of that stuff always in the program even if they might be a concentric athlete they might need a little bit of of that stuff to make them tick yeah yeah i work with um just doing the strength and conditioning work but for a guy who is the olympic gold medalist in the 100 meter freestyle and at 2012 and he this he has the he's the epitome of a, a concentric 1a type but he had in high school, he had a big aerobic background. They trained him, you know, as swimmers and swim clubs and swim teams often do. They just do a ton of swimming. And so he he still has some of those those characteristics from that background, despite the fact that he's a, you know, super concentric monster. And so that's interesting. So you, you if someone has that background, you those pieces should always be there more so than someone who didn't have that background then. Like if I had a sprinter who they their high school coach made him run a ton, and, and maybe they, they're just used to it. So I should, versus maybe just doing all circuits, I should maybe just leave a little bit of that tempo work in to kind of feed what they had at some point. Yeah, and it also depends if they're successful, right? If they were in that system and the whole reason they've come to you is because they want something better, you can't give them more of the 
the crap that didn't work right mm-hmm. oh, of course yeah you can't just keep doing all that tempo yeah but like but just keeping a little bit in just because they had that experience you're saying or 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 i guess it's probably there's probably a few ways you can go with it really but what so what exactly are you I mean, you have to switch, obviously, but <laughs> what are you saying with keeping that in exactly, though, for like someone who was would come from that background? Yeah, I think maybe that comes back down to when you talk about epigenetics. It's epigenetics. So maybe they have this genetically determined type, but through their epigenetics, they've kind of learned to adapt to, to certain types of training. And maybe then they're robust enough to handle it. So it, maybe if that athlete never trained like that, if I had them at 21, they would never ever touch that stuff. But because they need a little bit of that to kind of one, maybe even from a psychological perspective, yeah. make them feel confident. But even two, again, there there will still be some physiological benefits from it because we're always addressing weaknesses as much as we can, but not not too much for sure. Yeah, yeah, and that's a question I'll kind of save for the end because I wanted to talk about you know doing the opposite at some point, right? Like if you're a concentric person, you know, a bad RSI and what to do with that. But I'll, I'll save that for the end. Um, shoot. Well, my mind's already going there, but I, I want to get back on to what I was thinking about before. Um, yeah, but this, I think the psychological is, is math. We, we really, I, as long as I've been a coach, I think we undercount that so much because with, when athletes have those mental anchors from what they had done before, I think it just oftentimes becomes this philosophical fight of, Oh, that was bad for you. I have the right, you know, training program and, and I think we need to be more sensitive to those things that just make them feel good and just, you know, yeah, do a lot, maybe do less, do a more appropriate amount, try to reframe it or something like that. I mean, that's what I've had more success doing than just trying to be rigid and, and saying, well, this was, this is not in your best interest. Cause it really doesn't work most of the time, unless the athlete is like super just plastic and they're like, yeah, I don't care about any of my old, it definitely seems to work that way. Uh, Anyways, I, I did. Um, I, I wanted to get kind of go through each of the types because I had a, a few questions about each of the types specifically. And w- with the concentric, it reminds me a ton about. Um, I coached an athlete uh, back at Wilmington College who was the female fifty-five meter dash champion. So obviously, you know, super concentric type, and she checks all those boxes. And even the way we trained her, I mean, this is back in my mid twenties when I didn't honestly know that much. I didn't have any formal mentors. I just kind of went with my intuition and what might work. And really what we did was exactly what would fit a concentric for the most part. We didn't do a lot of tempo. We tried to do more circuits, you know, short stuff, standing triple jumps, you know, full range work in the weight room. Of course, I, I hadn't evolved to the point where I think I was doing a lot more partial stuff at that point. But, um, you know, all those things, you know, described her to a T, even like the vertical jump in the RSI, like she had a 30 inch vertical jump or. Uh, what is that in centimeters like 70 centimeter vertical jump but her rsi was really terrible and so she she fit all those things um the one thing i i wanted to and and so you're just to like for me to kind of run back that description so these athletes are you know short they're they're like feed the cats basically i think in tony holler's system like just super low volume not really doing a lot of tempo no aerobic work i know he doesn't do lifting though and and so that's where a distinguishing thing is is i know um, from my experience, these athletes do really tend to like lifting. And, uh, but at, okay. Uh, one thing I was curious about is a full range lifting and, and where I was thinking about it is, you know, these, those athletes in my experience tend, they, they're, they're super strong. So they can also get more squatted. Like they, they can just run with a lower, more squatted hip naturally. It just comes more easily to them. And so I wonder too, if the full, like, thinking about full range to me it's just like the deeper squats maybe just fit with the fact that they're just good with their hips in a lower position too um 
what do you think what do you think about that like just like the squatting element of it more uh, versus the the pushing element yeah yeah i'd, I'd agree i'd agree joe and as it's if i take take myself back to when i was with speedworks and jonas always used to say he said so like for this athlete this is their chicken soup they need to do that and if they've if they've gone away from from squatting maybe once once a week or once every 10 days they have to do that and if, if they don't have that they lose all sense of feeling in their in their acceleration phase again like i talk about it kind of gives them some sense of feeling in in, in tonus and tension around their their quads because they need to feel that when they're accelerating and if if they don't have that which against heavy squatting will give you right when you when you when you squat heavy you, you kind of prep the, the neuromuscular system to have tension in your anterior train so it, it gives you that, which again helps with the feeling on the track. It helps with those pushing capabilities. Yeah, that makes sense to me. I actually, the way my mind kind of hits it is the idea of um, like good accelerators being able to co-contract the right muscles at the right time to be squatted and hit those shin angles. And it makes sense, yeah, for an athlete who's really dependent on that, that, that squat activates that tone. Like I've had swimmers who have said, oh, I actually swim faster when I do, like it's just in the swimming culture to do like a ton of abs. And just get an ab burn or have sore. And I've had multiple swimmers who say I swim better with sore abs. And and I feel like it's just maybe it's just a tonus like muscle feedback thing. Like where you have that little bit of soreness and it's almost like a you you have that tone through the front that maybe it's just a feedback enhancer or something. Or, you know, you you also feel like you're more ripped or something too. But I I think uh it, that's interesting. I, I think that's um interesting way of putting it. I because I, I think about I mean, one of the things I'm still trying to wrap my head around is I, I think I just, this is just me personally, but I don't necessarily like the idea of pushing or, or, or telling an athlete to push just from what could happen with like the Achilles, the balance of the Achilles tendon and pushing off. But I, I do know that those athletes who are stronger in squatting can do better with those types of cues naturally. Um, so I'm, I'm just trying to frame, you know, all the factors that I think you know, fit into that deep squat. Cause I, I, I believe you, I, I, I do think those athletes do better with the full range of motion work and as an elastic athlete myself, I can, I can tell you that, um, that the full, the, the full range of motion work has not worked you know that well for me. And then, you know, obviously in working with jumpers as and well. I, and I think also, Joe, it's when people talk about transfer of training for me, this is, this is real transfer of training because for these concentric athletes, this I've seen squat fly up and acceleration ability fly up hand in hand. Whereas for the elastic ability, uh, the elastic athletes that, like you said, it just doesn't happen as much. And that's why some people get married to the squat and get married to lifting because they see these numbers fly up with some athletes and their acceleration and speed abilities fly up at the same time. But that doesn't fit for everyone. I wanted to take a quick break from the show to share with you a little bit about what our sponsor, simplyfaster.com, now has available in their store. You hear me mention in the outro of the show all the time about the free lap timing system in the K-Box, which I have and use regularly. But today I wanted to share a little bit more about the bar speed monitoring units that Simply Faster has, which is the Gymware and the new portable flex unit. So let me start with the Gymware. I mention it regularly on the show. It's been referred to as the Cadillac of bar speed monitors. Carl Valley calls it a lab inside a lunchbox, as the readings you get out of the gym work go well beyond typical concentric or just up the up phase of the lift velocities. Rather, you can measure the entire shape of the barbell lift in terms of eccentric velocity, range of motion, and total work done. Total work being awesome, by the way, especially like comparing a long-armed bench presser or a 6'10 squatter versus a 5'11 point guard. 
So you're getting all these extra metrics that you're not getting on other units. It's perfect for teams wanting to manage the weight room and the data synchronizes to software platforms such as Coach Me Plus, Team Builder, and Athlete Monitoring. So new to the store is the Flex, which is the ultra portable and lower price travel version of the coach's favorite gym wear. So just like the gym wear, the Flex measures the shape of each rep, range of motion, total work done, eccentric dynamics, so for this and the gym aware, this is the advantage that a force plate would have over just knowing how high you jumped. You're getting many other metrics and information that go into this unit of work. Compared to similar portable bar speed monitors, this unit gets the entire rep rather than a fraction. So you have here two awesome tools. And if you're interested in upping your game in the velocity-based training and bar speed world, I would definitely recommend heading to the store at simplyfaster.com and checking into these two units. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, because yeah, you throw, you know, and even even in this uh, a team sport setting, right? And that was something I was going to ask you as well. Is I, I do feel like these, you know, if you have a team sport, it's kind of hard to individualize, right? Like, are you gonna? Is it going to be worth it to try to you know segment out your athletes for the on field you know workout or whatever that that has some energy system specificity to the work? Uh, but I I was. Um, I was thinking one question with this, and maybe that could be another question towards the end. I don't want my mind to get in too many places, but but what do you do with these athletes too, who are getting overtaken at the end of races, who's their top end speed, you know, squats go up. That's important part, but um, you know, maybe they're great at 60 and they're starting to get overtaken a little bit. And I know there's a lot of biomechanical components to it too. I mean, even like Christian Coleman versus Shelly Ann, you know, two very powerful athletes from a muscle perspective, but Shelly Ann seems to be a little better at the end of races than Christian. You could say maybe that's that the foot turn, Christian's feet are turned out, so he doesn't have a lot of time to produce force at all and just is stuck in that mode versus Shelly is a little different. Um, I know Darian and I have talked about that on a former podcast, but what, like, what, what do we do with those athletes to get them a little bit better at the end of the race? From That's their weakness, obviously, but what do we do there? Yeah, I think it's about, it's, it's, it's about efficiency f- for those athletes look, they're never going to be dominant in that part of the race. They're not going to be dominant 30 to 60 or, or 60 to 100, but they can be good enough and they can be good enough to then have a great split zero to 30 and then have a, a, a good and average split 30 to 60 and then and 60 to hundred. But if we expect them, if we expect that they, we're going to be able to make them like Noah allows from 60 to hundred, we're, we're kidding ourselves, mm-hmm. but we can certainly make them a lot more efficient. And for those guys, making them more front side and making them more economically better in, in that sense will we'll work for these guys. And you see Coleman who, who earlier in the year last year, he was, he was very much more on a backside, but backside for him isn't a good thing. So when he cleaned up a bit more in Doha, you saw a lot more efficient splits in the last 40 meters of the race. And in terms of kind of a training perspective, you're always going to be sprinkling those weaknesses like, an athlete, they, they still have to be stiff, whether you're, a, whether you're a concentric athlete or a metabolic athlete. You still want to have a, a stiff ground contact time. So a sti- be stiff and have a, a, a relatively crisp ground contact, which, which will help with a, with, a, with a number of things and simulate some other, other key components like having a kind of more, more neutral, neutral spine rather than a, a lumbar extended spine. These are a certain important technical things that are going to be kind of standard across all of them regardless of those idiosyncrasies we talked about so look i'm i'm, I'm always going to do kind of pogo jumps hurdle jumps 
pumps with a concentric graphite, I'm always going to do a little bit of technical tempo running. You know, that might only take it out to 120 or 150, but I'm not going to take those guys out to 200, 300, like I might do for a metabolic athlete. And because there, there's no need to. And as soon as you go to those realms, the, the, the running mechanics start to break down. And if you're trying to make someone fast just to run 100, there's no need to, to take them out to those distances for sure. Do you think, and I know we'll get into, because I kind of want to talk about concentric, then uh, elastic, and then metabolic. Do you think that you mentioned those athletes getting more front side? Do you think that, but you had said like metabolic, you really, that, that doesn't bring success. So you do think that there's more upside to trying to introduce more front side ability to a concentric versus a metabolic then? Yeah, I do. I do. I think because they can still learn to bounce and learn to be elastic and they, they, they can still use some of their kind of when we hit the ground, right. To, to, to stop us from collapsing. We want, we kind of don't want the, the, the knee joint and the quad to kind of yield too much. And because they're so great there and have great abilities there, they can use that to their advantage. So when they hit the ground, they're not going to collapse and, and plop on the ground and go back. So they want to be able to attack the ground and, and come straight back up. And they, they can, they can do this because they have these, these good kind of anterior chain abilities. Got it. Interesting. Yeah. I'll have to, that's something that I hadn't really thought about in, in the equation with that. So it'll be something that'll be interesting to, to, you know, kind of run through and, and check some videos out and look at, um, I think that's, I'm trying to think if I had anything else for concentric, but I think for now I don't, and I think it's pretty straightforward, you know, especially with like one, a type training and full range and, you know, um, so elastic, cause that's one where I, I, it, I think that that's, that's where you start to break a lot of the rules, at least if we're looking at traditional strength and conditioning, that's where a lot of the rules are starting to get broken and the ideas of force and the way we look at force in the weight room and things like that. Um, so just as my, my own overview is what you mentioned, like an elastic sprinter um, doing more partial range work in the weight room. Uh, one thing I thought was really interesting what you said, and I was like, you know, this, like it's clicking in my mind as, it, as you're mentioning it, is the need for um, variety in, in rhythmic upright running. <laughs> and I know, I, I remember when I, when I watched your video presentation before, I'm like, that is me to a T cause I know I'm an elastic athlete and I always did better when tempo was in the program, but I also, but it also could have been ba- playing basketball or a sport for me too. Like if it wasn't tempo, it's just playing ultimate Frisbee and it's just a lot of upright running with mixed rhythms and things like that. And I'd never heard it really put that way before. So that, but it makes all the sense, especially in my experience training high jumpers, long jumpers, and triple jumpers too. Um, so, what can you unpack that a little bit? Like, where did your thought process on that come from or, or originate from? And then, how does that play out in in training sessions? Yeah, again, probably similar similar to you, Joe. I mean, a lot of the the kind of guys I work with are kind of sixteen to to eighteen, and and some of those guys maybe when they're a little bit younger or even still at that age, they're going to be, they'll be playing team sports maybe once a week or in PE. And whenever track season would come around and they would stop doing that and I would maybe evolve the rhythmical running as much, they would kind of lose that sense of, of feeling and rhythm. And when you start to mix up the rhythmical running a bit more and, and mix up the means used to, to stimulate that, again, they find that, that feeling and rhythm back. So I can't exactly put my finger on what it is, but that's definitely something I've, I've noticed myself with those elastic guys and just having, having variation in how they put their, their steps down in, in their running stuff is important for them for sure. Do you use like different, so like for some longer sprints, I mean, are you doing like one fifties with different like emphasis or different types of wicket runs or 
uh it's like sprint float sprint type stuff like how does that how does what would a session like that look out if it's like a tempo day or something along those lines how does that how does that shake out yeah all of that stuff mate all of that stuff when we're doing tempo sprint float sprint fast faster fastest um wickets that are going um small to big wickets that are, that are all big and wickets with higher hurdles all, all those kind of things maybe stick runs all those kind of different ways i mean it's down to the coach's imagination how mm-hmm. can you stimulate that in different ways but yeah all of those things yeah, I found I found myself inventing that stuff this year. Just go out to the track. I mean, you know, I'm 36 now, so every year it's like I'm trying to come up with something new that kind of feeds my my engine. And and so I think this last year I'd do stuff like 40 meter to run a 200, but you'd run 40 meters and then then skip speed skip for 10 meters, you know, and, which is kind of awkward coming up a sprint, but and then run 40 and speed skip for 10 or just stuff like that. Like it's yeah, like you said, you can get as creative as and, you want yeah something something else we try and do as well are, are like i call them extended warm-ups but where they're still going in a multi-directional manner so they'll jog they'll skip they'll sidestep they'll zigzag they'll zigzag backwards they'll karaoke they'll do all these movements in the warm-up which again will kind of help stimulate those those different movement patterns which they're not getting anymore yeah yeah and that's why i've always liked too. like you mentioned doing the rudiment stuff and the little hops for all athletes but I think, yeah, that, and then it just makes me think about the variety of uh, that for a, for a, I just keep wanting to say a 1B neurotype, but an elastic athlete. Yeah, it's, and that's, it's, uh, I think, I really do think that's where, I mean, you know, coaches, I, I, I think coaches, we all learn and we try to be as versatile as we can, but I mean, I think it's, it's a little bit easier sometimes when our natural mode was to be a, you know, if I'm training elastic athletes and I was a jumper and I, you know, have a lot of creativity, I think that filters well into that, you know, that novelty that they seek and always coming up with these new ways to do these sprints, sprints and rhythms and jump circuits and all that. It's, and I, I, yeah, sorry, I, I was, I was and if, you, if you try, yeah, if you, and if you try and do that with some of the concentric <laughs> guys, they'll just kind of grunt at you and just go, oh, I don't want to do that. <laughs> not fun <laughs> yeah 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 i, I yeah and it, it, i like that you classified as rhythm too i mean there's clearly a lot going on i i always felt like doing the tempo stuff to me in my mind it was just well this is helping me elastically foot and ankle strength for re- repeated contacts but i never it hadn't clicked with me that there is that neuromuscular and rhythmic element and it's you know whether it's you know the charlie francis idea of of you know electrical efficiency and whatever's going on or novelty and the brain and whatever you know adaptation i don't know but i the i like that you had talked about his rhythm because and as i've talked with enough good coaches on this show too and just how important rhythm actually is uh, we we discount it and so i think that's where you know what if we reclassify tempo into just some sort of rhythmic category, you know, how would that change things? Cause then, you know, if you're a sprinter saying, Hey, go run, you know, six by 300 has a lot different meaning, you know, that doesn't, if you're looking at it from a rhythmic perspective, I think that definitely can yeah. change things quite a bit. Absolutely. Just changing some terminology might make some coaches not get their knickers in the twist when you, when you run those kind of distances. Yeah. 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 Just cause like, what are we trying to get out of this? I, I one thing, so with the elastic sprinter and this, this is where I kind of like, okay, like, I get, I get it because um, but you contrast it versus training jumpers is you had mentioned you, know, you can do like the, the depth jumps or those things but you want to do really low volume with that I mean I imagine that that has to change right if, it, if you're a jumper now that now that becomes your bread and butter so you're saying if it's an elastic athlete but they're a sprinter and not a jumper you can still do those like high-powered uh, plyometrics but you just have to be lower volume in it 
Absolutely. And it, and it comes back to how big is speed a KPI for your event? So obviously in, in the long jump, it's, it's a very high KPI. But like for example, a girl I'm dealing with at the moment, she can she can run like 9.6, 9.8 meters per second on the runway. She's She's got world-class speed, but she can only jump 630 and she, she should jump 670, 680. Mm. So with her, yes, we have to smash that stuff. And that's the only way we're going to get her strong enough to be able to, to handle a takeoff is do that high velocity strength and do those kind of depth jumps and, and, and bounce off speed and all that kind of work. And okay, yeah, maybe that might not help her max velocity get better, but that's already good enough. And there's, there's sometimes we have to address, we have to address those weaknesses. Yeah. So, so for her, she just, she's going to have to adapt into and a long jumper, obviously too. It's a little different, but yeah, because of her needs, she's going to have to do more of the volume of that type of thing versus someone who just sprints. And yeah, the fragile nervous system thing, that's kind of something there's a, there's a coach from FSU called uh, Keith Hurston. And when I kind of put this out on Twitter, he, he messaged me straight away. He said, these are exactly the same types I have. And, and this is how I train him. We talked on zoom for like two hours and he basically came up with all the same things that I found. And he, he kind of said something that was really important with those elastic guys. And even as jumpers that you have to be kind of very careful with their fragile nervous system, and especially with the jumpers just doing enough to give them what they need, but not so much that you overdo, overdo that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I know um, myself and then I'm sure every coach who's worked with that, it's kind of like playing with fire a little bit. Some of those higher powered plyometrics and you have to be really careful not to, to overblow those circuits. Um, for, uh, it, and you had probably mentioned this before, but I know the concentric sprinter pretty easy. And again, just for my end to put in the show notes, but I believe you had said like Andre de Grasse, like real prime example of an elastic sprinter. Um, any others that really stand out from the elastic end or from like yeah, a female um, side of it? From from the female side, you've got kind of Jetta, you've got Elaine Thompson. And from the men's side, you've got de Grasse, probably going back. Donovan Bailey was, was someone who was like that. Um, Blessing Operabo, she's a she's a real one to look at for the female side as well. Bartoletta, um, Adam Jamili from the men's side. Those are kind of all which really have that exaggerated front side action, really short ground ground contact time and really bounce themselves upwards and forwards. What do you think the um do you think that like uh, with the fronts because I guess it from a if you looked at physics and you say, okay, you have a lot of front side and you can like, you can bring your foot down harder and, and have a greater collision. Um, although I also, I do think that like you look at Usain Bolt, whose knee doesn't get quite that high. I'm actually curious, where would you put Bolt on this before I, I didn't see him in there. Is he an anomaly? Where, where would he go on all this? Yeah. I don't like to talk about Bolt too much. He's a bit of a, not that he's an anomaly, but people just talk about him already too much in the sport. And he's just kind of, uh, Obviously, he did great things, but he's just predictable to use. But I would say Bolt is elastic, but when he was younger and maybe when he was coached less well, and you saw him in those kind of when he was a junior in Jamaica, yeah, running very pronounced, yeah, metabolically. But as he was cleaned up and as he was run faster, he was a lot more met, a lot more elastic. And then when he had his seasons, which weren't quite as good, he was a bit more backside and a bit more hamstring problems. So I think Bolt was inherently elastic, but maybe because of the way he trained and some of the injuries he, he had maybe sometimes he was maybe a hybrid for metabolic as well sure yeah i only ask because i would think about i think about you know if, if the the indicator for elastic is you know front side because i know andre de Grasse didn't have like a ton of front side either but i think about if the foot is high behind the body you look at the way the foot gets snapped down from behind 
if there's you know some element of speed in there and and whatever whatever contributes to the collision i guess you could say um or or, or you know because the the faster sprinters versus a team a field sport athlete have that their collision immediately in stance is more substantial more braking forces but also a higher spike in force versus uh someone who's not as good at top end and well i think about so why um why do you, I, 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 I could see it too, because usually elastic athlete can bound, right? And if you can bound, you can get more front side. And I'm, I'm curious what goes into that though, from your thought process of, of that element of it. Be a, be a little bit more specific for me. Oh yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. That wasn't a good question. Okay. Let me reframe. Uh, why, why is it that an elastic category has more knee lift? Um, yeah, I think it's about how they strike the ground and when we talked about the concentric element, uh, concentric athletes and those guys having more anterior chain tone and tonus. And these guys have have more tone and feeling around their calf and their ankle complex. And the only way you can feel that when you sprint is if you have space in front of you to strike the ground. Like you can't feel that if you're spending longer on the ground and you're pulling behind you. There's no way you can attack the the ground in that fashion and make use of that tonus and 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 feeling around that ankle joint which you really want to feel to be able to strike the ground if that's your gift yeah i think about it okay that makes sense like i because sometimes i think about athletes too in the sense of how well can you um how well do you work with the space like behind your body the motor mat behind like the how well do you do with like feeling yeah like you said your ankle but also your your posterior chain and, and what's your sensory relationship there and so to me, that makes, that makes a lot of sense because a lot of athletes really don't, even you see it in the weight room too. They, they just don't like a roof at elevated split squat. They have a really hard time being uh, balanced. They just want to like push forward into it and let their knee, not that I have anything with the knee going over the toe, but like they just, it's like, that's where their motor map takes them is in front versus having that, like you said, like it's like a connection, a tonus of the posterior. And I feel like that's, that's why I asked about bounding. Cause I feel like an athlete who can bound well where they can let the the front leg like kind of extend out. Not that bounding and sprinting are as every year. I feel like bounding and sprinting are a little more disconnected than I thought it was. But but uh, I, I I mean for just from my processing of it, I feel like yeah, if you have command of your posterior chain, usually you can bound well and you can do things in bounding that that work. And if you don't, it just is like you you have this bent leg bounding style where you're always you can't really get elastic at all. I'm just trying to make sense of it. Sorry, I'm kind of rambling right now, but no, it's all right. There's, there's like an acceleration speed bound, and then there's real bounding, which triple jumpers and, and jumpers do. And people are kind of blending the two of them when really they're, they're two very different things. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Um, so, in the, the strength perspective of that, I mean, some athletes, how much strength then? And you said they're versatile, right? Like they could do it, they could not do it. Um, I, it almost makes me think of ideas where. They, that's a type of athlete that does, could do really well lifting and then just not lifting for periods of time and alternating, you know, or alternating those emphases. What, what are some, um, you know, outside of the the idea that, you know, partial is good for them. What are some other thoughts on lifting for an athlete or sprinter who is a very elastic in nature uh, being? Yeah. Just to touch on that point about them needing or not needing heavy stuff. I think that what the idea you put out this week around, kind of when your your nervous system has that big intense stimulus there's no going back from there and certainly with these guys once they've had that and you 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 see it especially in jumpers who do these big heavy quarter squats 200 300 kilos uh, maybe maybe some of them don't need them but once they've been there they've probably 
got got to have that now and again. But I've certainly, and even you hear like Dan Path talk about it, Fabrice Lapierre never never touched uh, weights really in his career and was an 858, 68, 70 jumper. And same with Obadaley Thompson. Like he was an elastic athlete for me. And, and Dan said he was allergic to the weight room. So you see loads of examples of guys who are just so gifted elastically and have that really kind of rhythmical sense of how to produce force effectively and how to sprint effectively without needing those tons of kind of stimulus in the weight room that maybe the concentric concentric guys do. Yeah, I think that the long-term equation really hits for those guys because I was a, I mean, I, I was the king of, uh, in, just in my own training, looking at myself, and even the way I trained athletes sometimes, like I knew how to get elastic athletes really powerful through a combination of plyometrics and weights. But I think to myself, I think I could have increased my own longevity and my athletes if I would have been a little more selective as to when they had the weights. Like you were just saying, like you can hit that huge quarter squat, but you can't do that. Keep doing that, <laughs> especially as an elastic athlete. Eventually, you just like need to rest so you have somewhere to go with it or like maybe using it later in the quad if you're an Olympic athlete or later, you know, like or prioritizing it at different places. But yeah, that I, I'm glad you brought that up because that makes sense, especially with the variation based athlete and elastic and things like that. And you see that a bit as well in the, in the Cuban system, like their, their weight system. If they did a 200 kilo quarter squat one year and it made them better, and then next year they're doing a 300, 250 kilo one, and then the year after they're going 300. And then they'll keep doing that until they just explode. And then a lot of these Cubans you never see again. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. Cause I think, yeah, it's, it clearly helps, you know, like I think we could debate, Oh, do those athletes need it? Yeah. The, the heavy partial stuff really can help, but where do you go? Like, and when do you plan it in? And I think that's where, uh, that's, that's where I think that's where that, um, you know, wisdom as a coach and long-term planning. And I don't know, I guess, you know, we like, like Jeff Moyer had wrote that article and he said, Hank Krainhoff, so we're obsessed with acceleritis, you know, we have the disease of acceleritis and, but it's, you, you think about maybe some of these jumpers have to hit these marks, you know, oh, I have to be good this year. or I don't know, like I have to be fast to make money or I don't, I don't think it was like that with the Cubans is, you know, more communist system, but I, I don't know. <laughs> I just, it's just, you know, for the purity of sport and just the purity of being the best long-term, you know, these are the important things, but there's a lot of social factors in there as well. Um, interesting. And, yeah, it's it's hard to attribute it just to, down to one thing, but you see the way the kind of Teddy Tamgo would train, and he very much adopted a Cuban system when he had Ivan Pedrosa. Mm -hmm. I remember Randy Huntington saying to me, he said, "All you need to do for Teddy Tamgo is just blow, and he'll go and he'll jump further." But then, <laughs> kind of Teddy was obsessed with this kind of Cuban system, and ultimately, he kept breaking and kept breaking, and then unfortunately, he had to retire early. Yeah, that's yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting to do those long-term things. So I think it's really it's easy just to do a social media clip and say, "Oh, this look at this guy doing this exercise," and he was you know jumping really good at this point or something like that. But then you know it's just we always have to I think expand out and look at the the longer view sometimes. And I know I've I've certainly you know been caught in that as well. It's it's you know it's very easy to throughout my years it's very easy to. Uh, okay, so I do. You know, I, before our time's up, I, do, I definitely want to cover metabolic because that's like the wild card or the you know fascial metabolic. That's the one that you know. I saw your presentation. I'm like, whoa! I've never I've never thought about this before from the perspective of how the mechanics fit in. And I think you know, it's we debate different training styles, and ultimately, it's just well, what what is the athlete's you know? A lot of it's like, well, what's your muscle twitch type? You know, what is this and that? But I never heard of it explained as you had said. So um, the you know the metabolic or the fascial athlete. Uh, so from my understanding, what you had mentioned, they, uh, they tend to have a little bit more backside mechanics. They 
they spend more total time on the ground. Like I know Michael Johnson, right? Like he had a super, he had a five strides per second, right? So that indicates just getting his foot back on the ground pretty quickly to take advantage of better metabolic conditioning. Yeah, stride frequency is made up of a, a number of things, not just uh, how long you spend on the ground, but that's something probably important to touch on anyway, the stride length versus stride frequency. That while some coaches like to say muscular guys are more length dominant and fascial guys or metabolic guys are more frequency dominant, it's not always the case. And in those examples, you've got Alison Felix, who's a length dominant athlete, and you've got MJ, who's a frequency dominant athlete, but MJ is still pulling himself forward, although he's maybe spending a short amount of time on the ground, he's probably spending even less in the air because he doesn't really have, mm-hmm. he doesn't have much air time at all. So relatively, it's not just a total time. It's probably more relative uh, air time relative to ground contact time. You're listening to the Just Fly Performance Podcast brought to you by Simply Faster. Yeah, the, the metabolic one was interesting too because I think about sprinters I've worked with who like they're not the most powerful. Their vertical jump isn't great. They're okay in the weight room and they're pretty bad accelerators. But once they get up and going, they can roll. And I'm like, well, what is it that makes you fast? And the more I've learned from mechanics and uh, down the line, I've, I've realized the importance of that backside and that, you know, that tightly folded, um, you know, getting that tightly folded heel up to the butt, especially in that, like, kind of like that, um, that early backside swing or sorry, late backside swing, right when that hip is passing through and how the faster sprinters just seem to be able to do that well. And so why, um, I, I guess, I, I mean, I, we, we do have video, so I can't like really go on a tangent here. I, I just think that's interesting. I think that, so some examples, you, I think you had said like Michael Johnson, I think you said Tyson Gay was like kind of that, but he was also a little elastic. Um, any other sprint? So Allison Felix, do you think those sprinters are that way? Um, usually it's just because of a predisposition, like maybe they're like a fast intermediate type muscle they, they just had good muscle endurance and that's just the style that they cater to? Or do you think I, an athlete who was just forced into that training, you know, an athlete who just goes to like a tempo school or something like that, maybe they just become that way over time a little bit too? How much do you think nature versus nurture is a factor there? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. Um, I think look, if, if you look at some of those athletes I mentioned and how they're inherently trained, so like Alison Felix and Bobby Kersey's system, Bobby runs a lot, um, Tyson, Wallace Spearman in, in Lance's system, like they, they run quite long as well. And then MJ, we know, ran very, very, very long with Clyde Hart. So, yeah, with those guys, you can say, but um, you, you, without putting specific examples out, you've, you've definitely seen those guys who have gone from having a, a system of big volumes of endurance running and tempo running and speed endurance running and then going to more of a minimalist coach who doesn't do as much of that stuff and, and just not finding mm. that, that same thing and not then never having that, that back end of the race that they had before. Yeah, it is. It is. Yeah. And that's what we talked about before, like kind of going, being in a coaching system where like, Oh, what you were doing before was clearly terrible. And you know, you need to get on board with this. And yeah, I've, I've seen that as well. I mean, I've, you know, in former track and field jobs, I had had arguments with, uh, you know, head coaches about, athletes who need to run more this is the way we did it before and and it's just it is so individualized i mean you know there might be certain types of athletes that end up at a place or not and that's like but that's something i i took to heart and i thought about a lot because i you know i i never especially as a 20 something i didn't just assume that the way i 
that the way I did, I was always looking for those individual factors and how athletes would respond. And so it, it, it makes sense. And it seems like those are the athletes who probably would just be, you know, a, a, like a Clyde Hart system. I'd imagine an athlete who is a concentric probably isn't going to stay in that program that long or they're, you know, it's probably mostly the metabolic or maybe a little elastic athletes um, that would thrive. It, it's, and it's also the, the gift of working with athletes that aren't super genetic freaks is, is you, you have to work this stuff out a lot better and working in a, in a more sub elite environment means you, you kind of have to kind of chip away at your program and refine it and refine it even more. Because when you get these freaks that are just kind of won the genetic lot lottery a million times and, and some of those guys, you can almost just do anything as long as they stay healthy. And, and that's maybe sometimes where it's difficult, but certainly with the sub elite, sub elite population, and the kind of more development population that I work with, unless you have one of those guys, which in Qatar, we have like a, maybe a population of a hundred thousand teenagers to choose from where in, in the UK, you might have four or 5 million. Mm -hmm. Like we, we, we don't have that as much and we have to be a lot more kind of precise with, with what we do with them. Do you think that, uh, I was just thinking Clyde Hart, Jeremy Warner, I mean, cause he, I feel like he fizzled a little bit, you know, like maybe he's more of an elastic guy that needed more variation and they were just trying to recreate the same stuff over and over again, the longer stuff. I kind of wonder if that played a role. I don't know. I'm always just speculating, right? Like, but I, I wonder if that could be a thing in the system like that, where more variation is required and more elastic, you know, elements and those types of, for that athlete to evolve or, or to uh, maintain what they had. Um, yeah, I don't know with I don't know with Jeremy. I don't know enough about his his program, what he did after he left Clyde. But yeah, mate, it could very much well be. Yeah, yeah. Some is tough to speculate. I just remember reading that they were trying. I think after Clyde, like the the next coach was trying to recreate what Clyde did, and you know, I just think you know maybe an elastic athlete variation. I don't know. You know, there's so many factors. I shouldn't really try to speculate and exact act like I know what was going on. So, anyways, um, cool. Well, so I know we we our times running out. Um, just a couple of quick things. One. You know, we had covered weaknesses, um, but but just quickly, like your thoughts. Like I'm working with a, a concentric athlete, and it's the off season. Like how much am I? How much am I working on things that they're not great at? Like how much am I working on their posterior chain tone and the foot foot strength with them? How much am I working on concentric strength for an elastic? And how much am I working on? I mean, I don't know, like anything else, right? Than longer running for a metabolic. Like how how do you touch on things they're not good at? Do enough of it where it can reach a level where it's no longer um, poor, but don't do as much of it that it will, will hinder what makes them great. I'd put it as, as simple as that. And for some athletes that might be a higher volume. And for some athletes that might be a very, very little volume. It depends how well they adapt to that stuff. But just as an example last, so last year I had a, a sprinter who kind of was with me at the start of the season. He was running like 11, six real, real concentric guy I could squat like maybe at age 16 maybe like a a 180 half squat which is incredible for that age but mm -hmm. he had no he had no ankle stiffness so we had to kind of teach him that at low level do some pogo jumps that might be you know at the end of at the end of an acceleration speed session yeah do three sets of three sets of pogo jumps and then you chip away over that for, for months and months and it, then it becomes at a level where it's good and i'm never gonna then go okay you're not going to do any of the the long SSC jumps, you're not going to do any of the, the heavier loading in the weight room. But if I take that, you get to a point where you, if, if you want to do more and more of the, the stuff that would help his, his ankle stiffness, you'd have to take some of the other stuff away. So 
I would say you do as much of it as you can, but you don't have to take the good stuff away. And again, that will depend on how much work capacity that athlete has and how much they can handle. And if you've got a, a really kind of a, a new athlete which no, with no work capacity, you've, that you've really got to treat all that stuff in and do it very, very minimally. But if you have a if you have a youth athlete like I talked about in that presentation, if you have a youth athlete, like they're going to get better by puberty anyway. So you can work on that in a, in a lot more volumes than you might have a senior athlete and you can get away with it and they won't come to you at the end of the season saying, coach, why haven't I PB? Because at that age, you can get away with doing a lot of the weakness and stuff. Yeah, I like that way of putting it. Just makes perfect sense. Just do enough and, and it puts the art in the art of coaching too, right? There's no there's no like hard guideline of X amount of volume. You just have to do enough that it's not killing their engine. Uh, uh, really quickly too, um, so with team sport athletes, uh, I, I alluded to this before because it's a question I think is really important. I know a lot of people listen to this, not just track coaches. And I know track and field lays down so many foundations for what we can do in other sports. But any any thoughts for working with the team sports in this regard? Like, I mean, do you think it's, I, I, I mean, it's great to have this in mind, right? Because if you're working with a team sport and there's athletes who are improving and getting faster, if you're testing speed and you can probably realize some things, but how much do you think you can do or any, any, is there any thoughts at all you have on porting this over? And I know you mentioned like, you know, within the specs of like Raphael Nadal and Federer, but mm. any other thoughts on team sports and coaches uh, working with this information? I think it comes back to, again, how much, how bigger of a KPI is it? Like, so again, sprinting is the most important thing for sprinting, but if you're, Let's say a soccer player, you have to be, yes, you have to be fast, you have to be strong. Probably more importantly, you have to be fit enough to play 90 minutes. And then technical, te technical and tactical ability is number one. So it outweighs all of those things. Mm -hmm. And for some athletes, it makes those physical capacities very, very uh, irrelevant. But in, in the modern game, it's okay, it's a lot more important. And let's say you do have an athlete that's more concentric and, and how you determine which ones they are will probably be less from watching them run and more about maybe how they adapt to training because on a football pitch, rarely do you run at 100%. And the fact that it's on grass, it means if you're an elastic athlete, you're never going to be able to see someone bounce yeah, in yeah. football boots at eight meters per second, right? So you're not going to see those same kind of things. But when you're doing your profiling and you're doing your testing, you know, uh, kind of movement jump, uh, drop jump, you're going to see some profiles with those things. And then in the weight room, when you go through different blocks of training, you're going to see some athletes come out of those phases and play better than others. And like I gave the example in the presentation, if you look at um, someone who's a concentric athlete, they're going to be more fast twitch type. So when you do your, your endurance stuff, you're not going to send them on 10 K runs or send them, send them doing or doing one K intervals. They're going to need come, kind of something a bit more high intensity, a bit more repeat sprint, like maybe extended tempo, like that's going to benefit them because they're fast twitch and, if you if you put them in those kind of longer, more extended volumes of running, they're gonna they're gonna break down and show crappy running positions and probably get hurt. And it's the same with uh, on the other side of the spectrum. If you have a metabolic athlete and they come into your program and they're really kind of wiry and twitchy athletes, have got a good change of direction ability, um, and their their main strength in their game is they're they're fast and they can and they they have good agility. And if you go into the weight room and the and the coach puts on a, a shit ton of muscle and pushes pushes strength tra strength training to the nth degree and they'll come out and they lose that and if the head coach isn't going to be happy with you if you've piled all this kind of muscle and strength on and you've ticked the, you've ticked that box but then they go out and they can't do the thing that they came to do so it, it's certainly it's certainly relevant in those programs well yeah i love speed it speed isn't the kpi in those it's still very very important and it will influence those other things as, as you probably know joel with your 
kind of basketball background when when you've trained to your strengths and you feel good and you have that tonus your your skill skill acquisition your coordination all those things are very good as well right yeah yeah it just makes everything better when you're training in that way that fits you like it just <laughs> everything is raised up a little bit absolutely yeah that's that's yeah that's good stuff i think it's a lot of really you know it, again yeah we can't we can't be quite the same way with team sports versus track but i i, I love the way you put that um last question for you because i did have this written down is is and i think i know the answer is but i don't want to put words in your mouth but trainers versus racers uh it was the last thing we talked about basically athletes who can tolerate like max you know we're gonna go run you know five by 30 and they're all going to be as fast as they can or something today versus athletes that would do that workout and, and their nervous system would be burnt for a little bit longer. Um, how does that uh, factor in with these different types? Yeah. So I, like I talked about with the stride length and stride frequency dominant for, for me, that's a different box. Whether you're a racer or a trainer, I've, I've tried to kind of see if it worked and you'd probably expect these, kind of concentric guys to be able to do that more often and the metabolic guys be able to do it less, but it just didn't work, didn't work like that. And I had kind of metabolic athletes that could bring it and really bring it in training. And the same, I had concentric guys that just couldn't get anywhere near it. Hmm. So, and then vice versa. So it was really, for me, that's a different box. So race and trainer, different box, stride length, stride frequency, dominant, different box, personality profiling, different box, but concentric, elastic and, and metabolic, they, they're kind of your tier one boxes. And then Maybe these other boxes underneath are more of your tier two things. Cool. I'm glad you mentioned that because I just would have been like, oh, yeah, concentric's got to be the racer. And, you know, like, so <laughs> that's why I kind of had a feeling like I shouldn't try to assume too much. And that's good. Yeah. Cause I, I mean, like, like I said, like if we try to put athletes in boxes too hard, eventually we're going to do ourselves quite a disservice. So I, I like that. Very good. Um, cool. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's always spectral, man. It's always spectral. Awesome. Well, Ross, I think that's all the time uh, I have. But Thank you so much. I, I love um, I love your thought process, and I love I love watching the presentation for all this stuff. Again, people checking out the show notes. You know, make sure you check the show notes on the show and check out some videos of the types. But thank you so much for your time and and, and this information. Thanks for having me, Joe. All right, that does it for another show. Thank you so much for being here today. It's great having you guys. Uh, we're all in this together, and it's just this is a great learning journey. And and thanks for joining me on that. Uh, we will see you guys next week with another great guest. Uh, as always, don't forget to well one. If you enjoyed the show, would love it if you guys could leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Stitch, or whatever you're listening to. Uh, would totally help us out in spreading the word of this show. And second, just wanted to give a last shout out to our sponsor, simplyfaster.com. Uh, have an amazing blog, are putting out amazing information through that, as well as having an awesome online store. You heard about their products a little bit in the mid-roll there, and they have a whole lot more. So be sure to go and check them out and support them in what they are doing. All right, we'll see you guys next week.